0: Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Guys, over the last few weeks, we've been examining the life of Paul the Apostle Um, based on his own testimony. That was given before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. Uh, two weeks ago, if you guys remember, we looked at life's uh, looked at Paul's life uh, pre-Jesus, before his conversion, before his encounter with the Lord, and we were introduced to him as Saul of Tarsus, right? He was this great antagonist of the early church. Early on in the book of Acts, we see him persecuting the followers of Jesus with uh, really great ferocity, right? Um, at the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, uh, we see uh, those that are stoning Stephen, laying their coats at the apostles, or uh, he wasn't the apostle Paul yet, uh, seeing, seeing them lay uh, their coats at Saul's feet. And we read this in Acts chapter 8, uh, just verses 1 through 4, it says this, that Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem. And all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them in prison. And so we we kind of walk through the the early days of, uh, of Paul's life. When he was known as Saul of Tarsus, we we understood him to be a Pharisee, that he was given from uh, more than likely a wealthy home, that he was a Roman citizen. We kind of examined some of this background, but the main kind of emphasis that we were driving home in all of that was that he was actively hunting down followers of Jesus. He, In fact, he was on his way to Damascus to do that very thing when he encounters the resurrected Jesus. And then, so we that that was uh, two weeks ago. And then last week, we really began to examine Paul's conversion story more closely. We identified it as this catalytic moment that quite literally changes everything. Not just for Paul's life, right? Obviously, that was a drastic change for him. But we see how it sets into motion for the gospel to go forth throughout the known world based upon this pivotal encounter that we read about in Acts chapter 9. But uh, we've actually based our teaching for the last few weeks And kind of the the construction of this series has been wrapped around Paul's personal testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And so if you guys would want to turn with me there, I'm going to revisit uh, that part of Paul's testimony in Acts 26, uh, beginning in verse 12. It says, While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus, with authority and commission from the chief priests, At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me, saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goad. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen of, uh, seen, and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to the things which... Oh, guys, yeah. To whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Thank you, Lord. Guys, uh, I'm really excited. Uh, I have purchased a new Bible study software that I'm writing my sermons in, and I'm learning how to use it. This is my first time using it. So I apologize if my sermon is uh, quite a bit longer than normal. (laughs) <laughs> Just kidding, but the face that Shelby made was like terrified, <laughs> like a look of shock. <laughs> um, anyway, but this is Paul's account, right? This is his account of his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And I just, I love the language that is used here. This commission that he receives from the Lord in verse 18, he's being sent to the Gentiles to open their eyes in order to turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, I need you to understand the Jews want to kill him, not so much so for all the commotion he's starting, not because he's even preaching Jesus. That's that's a problem. But the main incitement against Paul and the reason why he's before uh, Agrippa here and he's pled his case to Caesar was the Jews want to kill him because he's been preaching this inclusion. He's been preaching this gospel message that the Gentiles can be made right with God as well. That's a a big thing that we're not going to dive down into super deep right now, but just so you understand some of the the backing here of what we're reading in the book of Acts. But uh, Paul, and if you guys remember, Paul is just the Greek expression of the Hebrew name Saul. So they're the same person. If I go back and forth between calling them Paul and Saul, it's not because I forgot who's who, and it's not based upon, you know, God changed his name. We kind of covered that the last two weeks. It is simply, uh, it is, Paul is the Greek version of the Hebrew name Saul, and Paul is primarily ministering to the Gentiles, and so we see the use of his Greek name more often than we see the use of his Hebrew name. But uh, last week, I, I talked about, as we read through that passage of Scripture, two important questions that I suggested we continue to ask the Lord of ourselves, and those two questions are, who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? And I just want to revamp, or not revamp, or revisit that and encourage you again, friends. I believe those are two questions that we can continually be asking of the Lord. Who are you and what do you want me to do? Because we must know God intimately and personally as both Savior and as Lord. And we must discover what he wants us to do. To fulfill God's will for your life is the highest measure of success. To be known and to, to know and to be known by him is the greatest marker of success. And there are plenty of successful people that society would deem as successful that are failing miserably in the grand scheme of eternity. And I want you to think about this, friends. The way that God defines success is going to be determined on that day when we stand before him. And he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. That is is the highest mark of success. And there are going to be plenty that stand before God on that great day of judgment. He's going to say, depart from me, for I don't even know you. To be known by God, to know him personally, is what I believe to be the greatest measure of success. And I think we can continually be asking of the Lord, what is it that you have in store for me? What is it that you want me to do? And I believe that is one prayer that the Lord always loves to answer. If you're uncertain about what you should be doing, if you're uncertain about where you are in life, I believe it's always a safe bet to go to the Lord and go to his scriptures. Ask God, what is it that you want from me? And so that's a little bit of a a recap. And so let's pick up in Acts chapter 26, beginning in verse 19 says this, Therefore, King Agrippa, this is Paul again. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance. For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and will proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. And so, friends, uh, with this serving as the the main portion of our text this morning, I want to highlight just a few things that the Holy Spirit was really bringing to my attention The first thing is that Paul demonstrated, and I use that word intently here, demonstrated obedience. It says in Acts 26, 19 uh, that he was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He was not disobedient to Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 19 tells us that he got to work. (laughs) I want you to to be careful here. I, I think it's I think the temptation to be the person that genuinely encounters the Lord and continues to live in rebellion is very real for a lot of people. I don't know how many people that I've encountered, how many friends that are no longer following Jesus today that had an authentic encounter with the Lord, that had a powerful encounter with the person of Jesus that has kind of continued to live in rebellion. That is one... That is one uh, the thought of that just one baffles me, but it's also one of the most heartbreaking things that I can imagine. To to have a powerful encounter with the Lord and go on living the same way is one of the greatest travesties that I can ever imagine. Could you imagine how how terrible, how miserable of a situation it would have been if Paul just kind of casually observed the Lord's command, right? If he's like, okay. Yeah, Lord, that sounds okay. That sounds good. And if he would have halfway followed it to completion, if he would have, you know, showed up at Ananias' house and uh, started that, but then didn't do anything, uh, could you imagine the travesty that would be for the entirety of the church? It would be, um, it'd be terrible. And so I wrote this, that obedience goes beyond feeling and emotion. It has to be demonstrated in action. And I love the fact here that Paul demonstrates obedience by actually doing what God told him to do. Remember how last week I I made mention of that question. He asked God, what do you want me to do? He asked Jesus, what do you want me to do? And God gives him instruction. And this is is the place where most of us kind of stop. We know what God wants us to do. (laughs) We may have even asked him what he wants us to do. But here's, here's the key part, and you guys are going like, to just lose your minds over how revelatory this is. He actually does it. Mind-blowing, right? They should just put that on a shirt and say, just do it, right? I'm going to trademark that and make lots of money someday. <laughs> Wanting to follow Jesus and actually following Jesus are two very different things. Desires good and it's necessary. And yes, the Lord knows the thoughts and the, the, the good intentions of our hearts, but He also knows your works. I think of Jesus' letters to the churches in the book of Revelation, right? Over and over and over and over again, in every single letter, He says, I know your works. I know your works. I know your works and the judgment that is pronounced upon the churches in the book of Revelation coming from the Lord Jesus himself aren't based upon their good intentions. It's based upon what they actually did with the gospel message. And I want to encourage you, friends, that what you do is important to the Lord. Good intentions are just that. But we're called to bear fruit. I think this is uh, this is important to note. In Acts chapter 9, verse 20, we read this last week. We read that Paul immediately went about the instruction that he received from the Lord. It says in verse 20, Immediately he preached the Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. This is directly after his encounter on the road to Damascus. Uh, it says that he goes for a couple days uh, to spend some time in Damascus with the with the disciples there, but immediately he begins preaching that Jesus is the Christ. He begins going to the synagogues, uh, declaring that he is the Son of God. And I want to make key emphasis on that word immediately there, because delayed obedience is still disobedience. I, I believe it's important for us to do what God asks of us when he asks, asks it of us. Now, don't get me wrong. If you've not been doing what God has asked you to do, now is the best time to start. But I I just want to challenge you. I want to encourage you. Don't delay. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Don't don't wait until next week because we're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised a week from now. And if you're sitting here thinking that eventually you're going to start serving the Lord, eventually you're going to do what He's required of you, eventually you're going to start uh, doing the things that you know you're supposed to be doing, uh, I, I would say don't waste time. Today is the day of salvation. Don't drag it out. Delayed obedience is still disobedience. And I love what we model, what Paul models us here for us. He immediately gets to doing the thing that God asks him to do. You see, many of us continue to ask God to speak, but we haven't done the last thing he told us to do. And we wonder why God is silent sometimes. We wonder why we don't hear him Give us clear direction. I think he paints it pretty clear uh, in his word. Oh man, I keep switching my notes here on accident because I don't know how to use this program. <laughs> uh, delayed obedience is still disobedience. So, what exactly was it that Paul was instructed to do? His instruction was to preach the gospel. To be a witness, right? He was supposed to proclaim Jesus uh, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. It's the same command that I believe disciples of Jesus still receive from Jesus. It's the same command that the disciples received in the Great Commission. It's the same charge I believe given to all disciples and followers of Jesus Christ. And we find that in Matthew chapter 28. Verses 18 and 20, it says that Jesus told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to pay special note here to the language that is used in verse nineteen. It says that all authority under heaven, uh, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given unto me. That's that's the language that Jesus uses here. This is the same voice that created those heavens. And the earth. This is the same voice that calms raging seas, right? Jesus is on the boat and he speaks to the wind and the waves and he says, be still. It's the same voice that commands demons to go and they go. But yet when he tells us to go, we stand defiantly. We might even say, no, it's not our responsibility. It's the church. It's the pastor's job. Even worse, we might be apathetic to this command. Treat it like no big deal. And so you, maybe we're not actually shouting no back to the Lord. We read this and be like, yeah, that's, I want to do that. You know, I think that would be a good idea, but I just don't know how. We might not be maybe actively rebelling against God and saying, you know what? No, I'm not going to tell anybody about Jesus. I'm not going to make disciples because that's just way over my head. That's the pastor's responsibility. But can I tell you, we may not be saying it with our words. If we We're taking like a multiple kind of choice quiz or something like that. We know that's the wrong answer. But can I tell you that we certainly say no to the Lord in fulfilling the great commission by our actions. If you want to know, like, if you guys just ever want to be depressed, like if you're ever just super happy and feeling good all the time, and you're like, man, this is, I need a change of pace and you really want a, like a, a good letdown, you should go read statistics on uh, church evangelism because <laughs> I, I was doing that this week, and I was trying to find like reliable statistics to share, not just to be dramatic for the sake of to being dramatic because you know majority of stick like I think it's like ninety eight percent of statistics are just made up off the top of your head right something like that uh, but you can <laughs> Somebody got my joke, and I'm happy about that. But but reality is, uh, I, I can, like, just start shouting off numbers and statistics and these things, and it may sound impressive, but I really was trying to find good research on these numbers, and there's a wide variety of uh, different polls and what that have been taken. But according to LifeWay Research and to my best, uh, you know, scholarship here, which I don't claim to be a scholar... Um, <laughs> Uh, it seemed like it was a, a pretty solid base that they were pooling their numbers from uh, some accurate representation. And it was a report that they put out in 2019. And this is this is crazy. This was startling to me, and this was convicting to me. But did you know that more Protestant churchgoers pray for evangelism than practice it? I mean, it checks out, right? That, 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 that checks out. Um, and... Uh, amongst active churchgoers, more than 55% say they have not shared with someone how to become a Christian in the last year. And I start thinking about that, and I start thinking about my own life. I was like, man, I hope I've done that personally, not just in a sermon or something like that. But I start thinking, and, and, and if I'm being honest, I'm being vulnerable here. It's convicting. And I think about this command that the Lord gives to his disciples to make disciples. I want to, be, I want to be effective in doing what the Lord has asked me to do. Not so we can have a big church. Not so we can have money in the bank or something like that. Not some, for some kind of validation on my part. But Jesus paid too high of a price for us to kind of sit idly by. I can already tell I don't like this software. <laughs> the second main thing I want to highlight here is Paul's message of repentance. In Acts 26.20, it says this, that he declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea Judea, and then to the Gentiles. This is what he, he preached, that they should repent turn to God and do works befitting repentance. I want you to take special note of this, that Paul's obedience was the fruit of his repentance. Paul just wasn't really good at following the rules, which he actually was pre-conversion and pre-following Jesus. He he did pretty good in following man-made rules. But I want you to understand his obedience to Christ was only successful because his repentance was genuine. So you have to understand this, repentance and obedience are counterparts. Paul's obedience as a faithful witness is the direct result and an indicator of genuine repentance. It's why he can say in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, to imitate me just as I also imitate Christ because he demonstrated repentance. Or uh, I wrote this that his demonstrated repentance is what gave him a valid platform to call others to do the same. The greatest hindrance, I believe, to evangelism today are believers who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord but deny that statement with the way that they live their life. I'll say that again. I believe that the greatest hindrance to evangelism today are believers who confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord but deny Him by the way that they live. I mean, if we're we're honest, I I don't know everybody's story here. But that is certainly true of my perception of the church before I came to know Jesus. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do with the church because every example that I had personally encountered with someone that professed to be a a Christian was uh, just riddled with hypocrisy. And so I mentioned last week that Christianity is a religion based on conversion, that conversion is a necessity. As a necessary part of becoming a Christian, that we're a converting religion. And so, with that being true, it must be our aim to see people turn from the power of Satan to the power of God. And that only happens by way of repentance. That is central to this conversion conversation that we're having today. I want you to consider the words of Peter after his sermon on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. He says this, Peter's words pierced their hearts, and they said to him and to the other apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this is the same message that Paul was preaching When he read in Acts twenty, when we read in Acts chapter twenty six, verse twenty, that they should repent, turn to God, and do works befitting repentance, and so, if I'm being honest, I read that, and there is a part of me as a pastor that really wants to preach like, uh, drive home like this three point uh, thought on this verse where. You need to repent, you need to turn to God, and then you need to actually do the works befitting repentance. And I would love to break it down because three just seems like the right number of points to have when you're trying to preach a sermon. Um, but I can't in good conscience separate the, the, the first part of that verse of repenting and turning to God. And in fact, scripturally, if you, if you were to read this in the Greek, and even if you would go all the way back to the, the Hebrew uh, concept of repentance, um, there is this there is this notion, to repent is to turn to God. To repent from sin encompasses this aspect of turning to God because repentance is more than just turning from sin because you can't effectively stop sinning without turning to God also. And I think we often think of repentance as telling God, I'm sorry, and I shouldn't have, and I'll never do it again. But it's more than just saying, I'm sorry. It's more than feeling bad about what you did or who you were. It's about turning the opposite direction. To repent is to recognize that one is wrong, to change one's mind and actually go in an opposite direction. And so when we're, when we're looking at this, this statement that Paul makes to repent and turn to God, I want you to, I want you to maybe dis, discard some of the thoughts that you have about what repentance is. It's not just feeling really bad and saying, I'm sorry to God and I shouldn't have and I'll never do it again. But it encompasses this mentality of turning the other way. The Greek word that's used here is metanoia. And it really, uh, it really kind of encompasses this idea of changing the way that you think. Changing your mind. Uh, renewing your mind. And instead of going one direction that's probably not working out very well, that you would actually do a 180 degree pivot and run to the Lord. And so, this idea of repentance encompasses stopping sin, right? Uh, to, to, to stop sinning, that would be the better way of saying that, to stop sinning and turning to the Lord. But how many of you guys have ever just tried to go like a day without sinning? I think my record is like 20 minutes and I was probably asleep. <laughs> I don't know. I, I remember when I first gave my life to the Lord, you know, I would wake up in the morning and, and earnestly, like in prayer, God, I'm not going to sin today. I'm just not going to do it. You can make me holy. You can empower me with your spirit and these things. I, and I'd believe it and whatnot. But I, I would sit there and I'd be like, I'd try really hard. I'd focus so much on not sinning that eventually I, I would do it, you know. I'd try to like white knuckle my way into just not being an idiot. Fast yeah, fast sin. There you go. Uh, for me, that, that never worked out. If it worked out for you, I'd love to hear about your experience. But uh, the reality is trying to stop sinning without the Holy Spirit and without turning to God is futile. And I know for me, I've had far more success in sinning less by focusing on my relationship with the Lord than highlighting the problems in my life. I'm not saying to ignore sin and if you have this issue that needs to be dealt with that you should just sweep it under the rug but the best way to combat that, the best way to deal with that is to lean into the Lord more than you ever have before. But I want to be clear, feeling remorse. I, you know, I said, I said this idea about repentance isn't just saying I'm sorry. It isn't just about feeling bad. But I want to be very clear here if you feel bad about sin, that is a good thing, and you should thank the Lord for it. I know it's not a popular thing, and a lot of like uh, from a lot of preachers today uh, to try to make people feel bad about their sin. You know, where there's no shame, there's no condemnation here. Yes, there's no in condemnation in Christ Jesus, but I do want you to feel guilt. If you're living in sin, I want you to experience that. And I know that maybe comes off as mean and judgmental and those things, but I believe that guilt is actually a tremendous motivator to change. I believe that you should feel the weight of sin. I believe it's important for us to encounter that and feel that, to feel remorse and feeling bad about sin is a good thing because Scripture tells us that godly sorrow leads to repentance. That it would inevitably result in salvation. If you were to read the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, we see, we see Paul having to write a letter to the Corinthian church, which we have in 1 Corinthians, uh, where he has to correct a lot of things that are wrong. There's some really messed up sin taking place in the Corinthian church and actually deals with a case of incest and it's just messed up. It's all, it's all jacked up and bad Bad news. And Paul writes to them with harsh language. Like, hey, deliver this man over to Satan. (laughs) Heavy stuff that we don't talk about. We don't talk about that in our secret sensitive, like, nice evangelical churches anymore. Um, But Paul uses some some strong language. And I want to read to you in his second letter in his response here. Uh, that he writes in uh, beginning in verse 8 of Second Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I am not sorry that I, sev- I sent that severe letter to you. Though I was sorry at first, for I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I am glad I sent it. Not because it hurts you, but because the pain caused you to repent and change your ways. It was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have. So you were not harmed by us in any way. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow, but worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. And so what I read about here, if we're making making people feel bad just for the sake of feeling bad, and it's not accompanied by the Holy Spirit, which leads people into repentance, it results in spiritual death. But there is a godly type of sorrow that is to be had. There is conviction of the Holy Spirit, where there will be uh, there will be sorrow and remorse felt over the tragic wrongdoing that we've kind of uh, we've brought before the Lord in our sin, and to have sorrow over that is a good thing, and it leads to repentance, which is so, so. Necessary. But I love this. It says, Repent, turn to God, and do works befitting of repentance. So, if I could tell you to repent then turn to God. We understand those are so I'm giving you like one A and one B there, instead of one and two. That makes sense. So we're coming into point number two, I guess, would be, do work." We used to have this silly saying in the youth ministry I was a part of. We just go around and tell each other and try to provoke one another and be like, "Do work, son." Do work, son. And we just said that all the time. We didn't really know what it meant. You know, there wasn't really a lot of like, none of us knew what we were talking about. Like if we were like lifting weights or something, we're like, yeah, do work. Yeah. Standing in line to get tacos, do work. Yeah. Uh, Not really talking about works uh, befitting of repentance. But I want to encourage you that there is work to be done. And that you should be able to demonstrate and flesh out genuine repentance with the actions of your life. Uh, if we were to read Acts 26, 20 here in the New Living Translation, it says this. That uh, the message that he preached was that all must repent of their sins and turn to God. And prove they have changed by the good things they do. You know, this comes into that whole like uh, James kind of discussion, like, is it about faith or is it about works? Is it by faith? Is it by works? You, and, you know, that's not the conversation I want to have this morning, but I do want to be clear that we're not saved by the good things that we do. You, you kind of making sure that you have this checklist and doing a lot of good works uh, does not somehow merit you favor with God in terms of salvation. You're not going to get extra Christian plus points and somehow reach 100 points. And then you're all, yeah, I'm saved today based upon good works. But I do believe that we do good things. We do these works that are befitting of repentance because we have been saved. So we understand that, right? We don't do them to earn salvation, but as a result of salvation. The fruit of a changed life is the single greatest evangelism tool that one has. I made mention of this last week, right? People can deny your your interpretation of Scripture. You can come and, and walk them through the Bible and show them exactly how Jesus came and how much he loves. And people can say, you know what, I don't believe in that stuff. And I get that, and it obviously boils down to the Lord and His Holy Spirit doing a work. But one thing that they can't deny is the evidence of a changed life. And I know for me that was really powerful and impactful when I first gave my life to the Lord when I was sharing with my friends about Jesus. The same friends that I was one time, you know, listening to heavy metal music and we were worshiping the devil with. And now all of a sudden, I'm talking about Jesus. There was clear and evident change in my life that was undeniable. They, you you couldn't attribute it to something else. And I strongly believe that the fruit of a changed life is so important in terms of evangelism. But I I think about this, you know, doing works befitting of repentance, and it. It reminds me of what John the Baptist would say. You remember at the onset of his ministry, he's calling out Pharisees. He would say, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He was talking about there should be actions, there should be evidence in your life, that there should be something that's taking place that's recognizable to everyone else. By the way that you keep with repentance. You see, I love that language of keeping with repentance because it shows me and it demonstrates that it's not just a one-time thing that we say and we do and we're done with it, right? I, I want to be honest. Uh, I struggle with this because I don't like being wrong. And even more than I don't like being wrong, I, I don't like admitting that I'm wrong. But I do believe that there is this idea of, of continuing with repentance, of, of staying in an attitude of repentance, in a, in a consistent thought pattern of I'm going to turn from sin and turn towards the Lord. On a daily, consistent basis. And so I praise God that the majority of you have at one point in time, you know, come to the Lord and says, you know what, I'm turning from my sin, I'm repenting, and I'm going back to the Lord. But how many of you guys know, we kind of wander? You know, like if, let's pretend a life of sin is over here, you know, 180 degrees that way, and God is over here, 180 degrees this way, and you know, I'm running full long into death right on my way to hell, and I turn around because of the grace and the goodness of the Lord and I'm heading towards the Lord, there is still this internal struggle because of the fallen world that we live in where I'm constantly drifting a couple degrees off, you know, where my eyes begin to wander and I lose my focus and I may not be like all the way back this way, But friends, I want to be so dead set, so keenly focused on the person of Jesus that my gaze is fixed. uh, As the psalmist would say, that my face is like flint set before the Lord. I want to encourage you. We need to bear fruit with keeping with repentance, of living, uh, living a life of repentance. Luke 3.8 says this. This is where I'm drawing that language from. I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. Where instead of saying bear fruit, it says prove by the way you live. It says prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. This message was delivered to the Pharisees who thought that they were good because, you know, they were really Jewish Jews. They were really, I mean, they they were God's covenant people. They, They followed the law as best as anybody could do it. And John the Baptist just cuts them down and says, your religious activity means nothing. Don't fall into this lie that you're safe just because you're Jewish, just because you have some history, just because, uh, because, because you are who you are, but prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. The same word that John preached to the Jews in preparation for the Messiah. This happens right before Jesus shows up on the scene are the same words that Paul would preach to the Gentiles after the Messiah had come. And I think that is so cool. And I think it's still a message for us to embrace today. To bear fruit. To keep with repentance. But I love this, that the call to repentance is always accompanied by the message of the cross. What did Paul preach We see at the very end here that what he preached was in verse 22. It says, Therefore, having obtained help from God to this day, I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come. What he's saying here is that I'm not preaching another message other than what I find in the Scripture. I'm not just giving my personal testimony. I'm not basing something off of something weird out here or a new school of thought. I am looking to God's holy scriptures and I am preaching that message. And friends, that's still the same message that we're called to preach today. And it comes straight from the word of God. And that message would be found and defined in 23 that Christ would suffer. That God really died. That he'd be the first to rise from the dead. And I realize that language is confusing to some of you. If you're reading that like me and, you know, I'm thinking like, well, wait, didn't people rise from the dead in the Old Testament? Don't we have like Elijah and Elijah raising people from the dead? Didn't Jesus himself raise people from the dead? You're thinking like Lazarus maybe, right? Does that confuse anybody? I got to take a little moment here and, and talk about this because I'm reading this. It says that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. I'm like, well, man, this is a contradiction. My faith is shattered, Right? Uh, No, that's not exactly what's taking place here. When we're reading that he's the first to rise from the dead, we're talking about he's the firstborn of the dead. He's the resurrected Christ. Uh, All those other people that were raised to life once again still had to die again. But Jesus was raised from the dead. He was resurrected not to face death again. It's really cool, really important, central, and pivotal to our faith. Um, we could talk about that for a long time, and that he would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. This is what has gotten the Jewish community so wrapped up, is that Jesus didn't just come, he didn't just die, and he didn't just rise from the dead for the Jewish people. It's not just their exclusive thing anymore, but all of humanity can be saved by the price that Jesus Christ paid. And that's the message that is so offensive here. It's still the message of the cross that Paul would lean so, heavily, uh, lean so heavily into so consistently. But I think about this, and if you're anything like me, you'd be like, well, you know, I didn't have this crazy dramatic conversion experience where I saw the risen Lord Jesus and heard his audible voice and tell me to do all this stuff, so I feel kind of lame. You might be thinking, you know, I'm not standing before any kings right now giving my testimony. I'm not doing this. And I was like, how am I ever supposed to actually make a difference? What does it mean to preach the gospel in the context that I'm in? What does it mean to be a faithful witness where I am? What does it mean to be used by God where I am right now? And I, I, I want you to take note of this, that Paul is doing what he's doing exclusively by one thing, and that is that he is empowered by the Holy Spirit. We read in Acts chapter 26, verse 22, it says, Therefore, having obtained help from God, Paul is very quick to make it known that he's not doing this under his own strength, he's not doing this under his own power, he's not just really good at, at you know, preaching the gospel, he's not just really good at sharing his testimony. Paul, in fact, was actually really bad at everything, just as Nate Ward is really bad at everything pertaining to uh, being beneficial to the kingdom of God. But I love that God can use a willing person that is bad at being a witness and empower him with his spirit and help him to be an effective witness. And so... I realize the way that I said that kind of just butchered my whole point. I should probably read my notes, but I really have no idea how to use this software right now. Probably should have practiced it before I tried to preach it. I'm back on page one, and I don't even know how to get back to the last page of my sermon. (laughs) Start over. I'm confused. Um, Thank you, Jesus. The reality of this is I want to remove any excuse... Anything that we might hide under for not being used by God where we're at. I want you to know your testimony is unique and that's powerful in and of itself. Because guess what? Yeah, I have a story where you know I got saved out of Satanism and my parents were heroin addicts and I had this crazy background. But the reality is most people, I don't connect with most people based on that background. The majority of the people that I have conversation with are like, oh man your life was jacked up. I'm kind of normal. <laughs> if, you're, if you're kind of normal, that's okay because God needs normal people as well. Does that make sense? I, I, want, I, want, you to, I want you to be comfortable in that fact, but it's n- not based upon who you are or what you've done or what your background was, what you did or didn't do. I believe the Holy Spirit wants to enable and equip you to stand before people both great and small to deliver the same message of the cross and make disciples in whatever context you might find yourself in. You might be standing before kings, you might be standing before royalty, or you might be talking to the homeless guy on the street. It might be ministering to kids, it might be ministering to your family. Your testimony is important. But it only makes sense when we're sharing it, when we're operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why Acts 1.8, the last, like the the words of Jesus that were commanded to his disciples were to wait in Jerusalem. And there was a promise that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them to be His witnesses telling people about him everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, to the very ends of the earth. I look at Paul and see a man that was pretty jacked up, had a powerful encounter with the Lord that God used mightily, even in spite of his background. But all of that happened and he was able to deliver and communicate and minister the gospel because he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. That same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the grave is the same Holy Spirit that is promised to you and I. To all of our children and all those who are far off. So friends, please stop making excuses on why you can't share the gospel. Please stop making excuses on why you can't be an effective witness because if the Holy Spirit is genuinely living inside of you, you are empowered to make a stance and make a stand for the kingdom of God. So my prayer is this. That we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That we would model repentant lives that would be fleshed out, where our actions actually match up with our experience. That we wouldn't be uh, that we wouldn't be some kind of knockoff Paul, where we encounter Jesus and just continue about like life hasn't changed. Thank God, Paul didn't do that but that we would actively live differently in every aspect of our life because God of all the universe saved us and delivered us and then commissioned us to do something about it. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.